Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with a doctor from the Cleveland Clinic about stroke. Then, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10-TV. I'm Tracy Townsend. Coming up on Face the State, we're looking closer at the push to change our state's constitution. Republicans say it's about giving Ohioans the choice, but Democrats are not buying it. Also, our state's parks may not be able to keep up with inflation. Why the director of the Ohio Department of Natural Resources says she's worried about funding. And what's old is new again for the state's new tourism campaign. We'll tell you all about it. And in the second half hour, I'll talk with another doctor, Brian Santine, who is the president of the Ohio State Medical Association. They're encouraging health care workers across the state to check on their own mental health through a website they've developed. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Dr. Jenny Sai from the Cleveland Clinic. She's also a board member for the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. How are you? Thanks for talking to us. Uh, this is Survive Stroke Week. What does that mean? Well, this is the week where we really want to get our message out there that strokes happen often. We see one stroke in every 40 seconds in America. And this is the time where we want to remind everybody that time is of essence when the stroke happens and calling 911 is really important. What is a stroke and, uh, and how common are they? Stroke affects a lot of people. Stroke occurs uh, one every 40 seconds and um, stroke is essentially when a blood vessel that delivers the most important thing, blood to the brain, gets uh, clogged, and um, suddenly the brain is running without its uh, most essential support. And what are the symptoms, the signs of this happening? We have a, an easy acronym called CSAS that spells out the signs of symptoms of stroke. E for loss of balance, E for eyes, loss of vision, blurry vision. F is for droopy face, A is for arm or leg, and that's a weakness or numbness on the one side. S is for speech, when you have trouble speaking or understanding what other people are saying. And T is perhaps the most important one, it's time to call 911, every minute counts. I've seen a a few examples of uh, newscasters on television having a stroke while they're giving the news, and they start to kind of speak garble and look very confused and you kind of get a sense that panic is sort of encircling them because they don't know what's going on. That's the S in, in BFAST, and this is why we, you know, have the acronym so that when somebody notices a symptom that uh, can fall into one of these categories, don't wait for everything else. Even if you have just one of them, even if you just have a suspicion, it's really important to call 911. We can do 2 million brain cells a minute. So how fast does somebody need to get attention, and and what is done to uh, prevent further damage? Well, we definitely know that uh, time is of essence. We say time is brain, and that is for a reason. And when we bring the patient to the hospital, first off, when the emergency medical team arrives at the patient's side, um, treatment is immediately started. Um, and they will alert the emergency uh, emergency department that a patient with a stroke is arriving. And so we can line up all the right players for the person who is arriving with a stroke. And we talk about, as a next step, delivering the right treatment. And that can come in the form of a clot-busting medication known, known as TNK or TPA. And if we need to, with the most severe stroke, where there's a big, large vessel occlusion, we can get the team um, that can come and retrieve those clots, pull them straight 
it out the patient's head, people like myself will come in and do these procedures emergently. We call them mechanical thrombectomy. When somebody is in their home or wherever, and uh, and if this happens and nine one one is called, is there anything they should be doing when they as they wait for the for the ambulance to arrive? The most important thing is to make sure that the person is safe when they're having a stroke. The nine one one team will arrive within minutes, um, and the most important thing for the nine one one team to gather uh, on arrival is to be able to make sure that they have a quick assessment of the patient and that we have all the information necessary for their medical history. So gathering their medication and having the contact information available for the family, making sure we know everything we need to know about their health within a quick glance is very important. Talking with Dr. Jenny Sai from the Cleveland Clinic, she's also a board member with the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. What about taking an aspirin? Sometimes we hear that's good, sometimes bad. We have required, we have asked the public to do so for, for years, um, and really the most important thing is sometimes we talk about a stroke where blood clot is blocking the path of blood to the brain and causing the same symptoms, but sometimes it can be a bleed that happens inside the head, and we may not be able to tell that until the person is in the hospital. So aspirin being a blood thinner, giving that right before the patient leaves home is actually potentially dangerous if the person is having a bleed. So what we say is, for now, let's get the 911 team on board and let's get everybody to the hospital as quickly as possible. Um, And we will deliver the correct treatment in the correct place at the correct time. And I guess the uh, outcome in terms of recovery can run all all across the board, right? We certainly know that, particularly with mechanical thrombectomy, we are now able to quickly treat some of the most severe stroke and the most disabling ones. And we know that we do um, see patients get better, and some of them go back to their home lives when we deliver these treatments very, very quickly. So it's really key to recognize them very, very soon after a a stroke happens. And when we do so, we do um, have the pleasure to send our patients home, and that is one of the most important things. We used to think about stroke as the end of everything, but we can survive stroke can do well, and we can see patients thrive after a stroke, and that's the most important message we want to deliver through the Get Ahead Stroke campaign. Are there any symptoms days or weeks or even years before this, weird sensations in the head or anything that could preclude this? That would be great, wouldn't it? So sometimes we don't have any warning, and stroke symptoms tend to come up very, very quickly and very abruptly, and the key really is to recognize them when they come up and speak up on us. Again, 911 is the way to go. And I heard somebody say once that who had a stroke, it felt like somebody had poured cold water on their head, that it wasn't painful, but just an odd sensation. Do you see things like that often? It's hard to predict how everyone would experience their stroke. It really depends on where the stroke is and how every person is affected. Um, And certainly when we came up with that acronym, VSAT, we try to capture as many of the key symptoms as we can. Um, Therefore, that's the really important part to remember that even though we cannot capture every variation of stroke presentation, BFAST will remind everybody of the most important symptoms that will allow us to capture most of those strokes. And Dr. Sai, where can folks get more information? We have a website through the Get Ahead of Stroke campaign um, supported by the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery, and that website is simply getaheadofstroke.org. 
Great. Uh, Dr. Jenny Sai with the Cleveland Clinic and the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. Thanks for the information today. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Changing the state's constitution. Coming up, the passionate statehouse debate and what we know so far about the August election. And new on Face the State, a funding fight, the director of the Ohio Department of Natural Resources is worried about keeping our state's parks operational. And the burnout factor. We'll look at why teachers are struggling and who will educate our children should educators leave the profession. Face the State starts now. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. at the state house despite demonstration legislation is moving forward asking voters to raise the passage threshold for constitutional amendments and now poll workers are preparing for an august election thank you so much for joining us for face the state on this sunday i'm tracy townsend 10 tv news reporter richard solomon takes us to the state house in the halls of the state house Together, they were loud and clear on where they stand with SJR2. Our ability to determine our own futures as voters is on the line. I am here to say today that this brazen, undemocratic power grab will not stand. The Ohio House and Senate agreed to send the voters in August a measure making it more difficult to amend the state's constitution. The resolution asked voters to raise the threshold for future constitutional amendments from 50 percent plus one to a 60 percent supermajority. This is about more than just one issue. It is about more than just one election. It's about roads and bridges, educating our children, investing in clean water. We spoke with State Representative Brian Stewart, who supports the resolution, and says he's happy with what transpired. I plan to certainly continue to talk about why I think it is the right policy change for Ohioans to make. I anticipate that you know there will obviously be a pretty robust campaign on both sides. I, I would expect that. Those against the resolution say this fight is just beginning. And we will keep coming back again and again and again because our democracy is worth having faith in the people of Ohio. 
And the special election will be August 8th. Many say there is a lot at stake here. We'll, of course, keep you updated. For now, reporting at the State House, I'm 10 TV's Richard Solomon. Back to you. Governor DeWine is not required to sign this resolution because it's going to the voters. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources is pushing for additional funding in the state budget. Director Mary Mertz says as the COVID-19 emergency began to subside, visitors flooded back to the parks. In 2022, there was a record-breaking 1 million overnight stays at parks, but she testified this past week that the parks might not be able to keep up under the latest draft of the budget. In the House passed version of the budget, ODNR's GRF was reduced 55.4 million from the proposed budget over the entire biennium. And what that translates into is essentially flat funding for the department's divisions. Um, I anticipate this will affect current operations as well as any future plans uh, that we may have in the department. After required pay raises and inflation, this will mean less money for improving and maintaining the parks where families have been making memories for generations, as well as reductions to the mission of many of the other impacted divisions. ODNR prides itself on safe, well-maintained properties, and the budget proposal we originally presented focuses on improving recreation and conservation providing wise regulatory oversight and continuing to grow our H2 Ohio water quality initiatives. ODNR owns and manages more than 800,000 acres of land, including 75 state parks. The department also has 120,000 jurisdiction over more than 120,000 acres of inland waters. There are staff members in every one of Ohio's 88 counties. The ODNR director spoke with the Senate Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee. We reached out to that committee chair, Senator Tim Schaefer, who says he's concerned about replenishing. Here's how the budget process works. Director Mertz was referring to the House-passed budget. Next, the Senate will pass its own version. Within the next month, the budget will be reconciled with the House of Representatives budget before the constitutional required deadline of delivering it to the governor by June 30th. Now to Washington. The full Senate could vote soon on legislation aimed at protecting railways. The Railway Safety Act of 2023 was passed by a key Senate committee. The legislation enhances safety procedures for trains carrying hazardous materials, establishes requirements for wayside defect detectors, and creates a permanent requirement for railroads to operate with at least two-person crews. Ohio's U.S. Senators Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance sponsored this bill. Senator Brown wrote, we built a a broad bipartisan coalition that agrees on these common sense safety measures that will finally hold big railroad companies like Norfolk Southern accountable. I'll continue working with members of both parties to get this done and make sure disastrous derailments like the one in East Palestine never happen again. And that's part of a statement from Senator Brown. Now, Senator Vance wrote, Through this legislation, Congress has a real opportunity to ensure that what happened in East Palestine will never happen again. Norfolk Southern will pay East Palestine homeowners the difference in loss if they are selling their home. This is according to CEO Alan Shaw in a letter to lawmakers earlier this week. And this includes houses within a five-mile radius of the derailment site. This plan will come in the form of a reimbursement fund.
One of the state's largest hospitals is right here in central Ohio and in the middle of a makeover. The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center has a new inpatient tower going up and a new chief executive officer moving in. Dr. John Warner sat down with me to talk about his first 30 days on the job. It's an exclusive you'll only see here on 10 TV. It's not just the building, which is magnificent, but it's the process. It's a chance to kind of re-examine your priorities, the work that you do, how you can better improve the care and service to patients and families. The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center's new CEO, John Warner, believes the building process here extends beyond the construction of this 1.9 million square foot inpatient hospital. My goal for, for Ohio State and the medical center would be to be part of that growth and to be an asset so that as companies are coming, they would be coming for the great business community and the living, you know, sort of opportunities in Ohio, but also for great health care. Dr. Warner comes to the Buckeye State from the Lone Star State, where he was CEO of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. So my wife and I thought if there were ever another chapter for us that was outside of Texas, that we wanted to go to a, a really vibrant community like Columbus. Dr. Warner says they are looking to make an impact here in the community and the workplace even after the pandemic. During the pandemic, we learned to do that. Um, we had to come together quickly to solve hard problems and really care for people and each other in very different ways. So I think that emphasis on teamwork is where medicine is heading. I think the experiences that we had during COVID will prepare us for that. It would appear medical centers nationwide were unprepared for the COVID-19 pandemic's toll on staffing. A March 2023 report from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics shows the healthcare system lost 20% of its workforce, with hospital understaffing leading to burnout and fatigue among frontline medical professionals. Warner told me they've seen a 10% year-over-year increase in terms of hiring at the medical center and 15% in hiring nurses. People have had a lot of experiences during the pandemic, which have sort of caused them to re-examine their own priorities around where they want to work, what type of work they want to do, what types of people they want to work with. So I think mission is more important than to people than ever. Mission includes overcoming the social determinants of health, the non-medical factors that influence health outcomes, including the conditions where people are born, grow, work, and live. How do you build on the work that's already taken place? Yeah, it's it's really important. Um, it's a great question. I, I think, first of all, I think, you know, learning to better meet the needs of communities starts with listening. And Dr. Werner's first day on the job he got to do just that at OSU East. His team shared these pictures with us. Ohio State has done a great job, I think, of both of those um, components, you know, examining where we could have the biggest impact by improving social determinants of health, but not just bringing what you're already doing to another community, going in up front and listening to the people that live and work in those communities, understanding what they're feeling, what their their observations are about their own health and well-being and how what, what we need to do to improve their lives. And Dr. Warner is a cardiologist who's practiced medicine for more than two decades. In addition to his medical training, he holds a master's degree in physician executive business administration. The hospital's inpatient hospital tower, by the way, is scheduled to open in 2026. One of Columbus's most beloved neighborhoods is working to move away from crime. This is where a lot of visitors are sent. We're kind of a, one of several flagships for our community. And having an erupt light in violence like this on what's becoming a regular basis 
is not good for the city as a whole, let alone our neighborhood. Coming up on Face the State, we visit the short north community and talk with a neighbor who's seen the ups and the downs of the area since the 1980s. Plus, I'm really happy that they are recommending to starting at age 40. New guidance from medical experts on mammograms. But there's one area where this breast surgeon is not in agreement. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. Neighborhoods go through changes, and no community knows that more than the short north. After 10 people were shot along High Street, we looked back into the 10TV archives and the Ohio History Connection to see how the area has changed. We also talked with someone who has owned property in the Victorian Village community for more than four decades. Here's 10TV's Clay Gordon. Certainly the uh, High Street corridor was very distressed and very crime-ridden in 1980 when I moved here. Jack Decker, the Short North Civic Association president, remembers 40 years ago when the Short North was the kind of place where you locked your door and hit the gas pedal. Police dispatchers began using the term Short North because it was north of downtown and short of the university district surrounding The Ohio State University. It was a squatter's neighborhood plagued by street-level crime and gang violence. And the word gang was synonymous with the Short North Posse. That group ran the street scene in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Its headquarters was North 4th Street and East 8th Avenue, which was once known as the most dangerous street quarter in the city. Numerous murder cases and drug investigations were tied to this group. But then came the crackdown and the arrests. Years ago, we went through and arrested about 46 members of the Short North, and this is a, a follow-up just to let them know that we haven't forgotten about them. The feds pursued cases against at least 20 members of the group. Violent element of the Short North Posse, I feel comfortable saying we have cut the head off. And prosecutors wrapped up that work in 2017. As police worked to force the criminals out, new businesses worked to change the narrative. The Short North Tavern was the first to use the neighborhood name in 1981. Gallery Hop began. And the opening of Rigsby's Kitchen in 1986 is known as a pivotal point in the Short North's renaissance. It was more than the food, it was the art and the Short North's arts district. A quick drive down High Street today shows the influence of immense creativity and commerce. But you also notice Rigsby Kitchen has closed, replaced with a new business, and massive apartment complexes, bars, and restaurants sit where artists used to make their living. There's a sweet spot in between where we started and where we are now, and I think we drove past it. 
And with gunfire interrupting the late night party scene, old questions about safety are new again. Having a predominant nation of bars and taverns in the neighborhood as we have for more and more in the last 15 years is, I think, a negative development that leads is pretty much correlates to the kinds of problems we saw Friday night and Saturday morning. We're in danger of killing the goose that laid the golden egg. I'm Clay Gordon, 10 TV News. The Short North Alliance, which consists of business owners and property owners, says this is a complex citywide issue. The group also notes there was a special duty officer who was able to quickly intervene. There are new guidelines when it comes to mammograms. Coming up, we talk with a breast cancer specialist from Ohio Health. And how about a staycation in the Buckeye State? We'll show you an Ohio tourism campaign that they might sound a little familiar. We'll be right back. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. An increase in breast cancer diagnoses has led to new guidelines for when women should get their first screenings. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force now says women should begin regular mammograms starting at the age of 40. The screening should happen every other year. Well, this past week on Wake Up CBUS, I talked with Dr. Deepa Hala Harvey. She's a breast cancer survivor and surgeon at Ohio Health. I'm really happy that they are recommending to starting at age 40 for average risk women than at 50. What I'm still not happy about is they recommend it every other year and um, they really don't have any recommendations for dense breast tissue or those women who have dense breasts. This is extremely important. I mean, we at Ohio Health fortunately do follow the NCCN guidelines which have recommended starting screening mammography at age 40. But, you know, there are physicians in the country who don't follow those recommendations and they were following the US. SPSTF guidelines to start at age 50. 40% of the black women are higher death rate for black women compared to white women. There are those interval cancers that can get missed. And about 20 to 25% of the women who die of breast cancer are between 40 and 50. And there are a number of studies to show that starting screening mammography at age 40 decreases death rate and also early detection leads to good prognosis, uh, regardless of the race. According to the Radiological Society of North America, the rate of metastatic breast cancer among women between 25 to 39 is up 32 percent since the year 2009. We are in the middle of what many are calling a nationwide teacher shortage. And one question looms, who's going to teach America's children when people don't want to teach anymore? Well, research has found that teachers impact student achievement more than any other aspect of schooling. But as our Verify team reports, many in the profession say they've had enough. I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know how much longer I have in me. Am I burned out? Yes, I've been burned out for quite some time. That stress is compounding. I need a pep talk right now because I'm not sure if I can come back Monday at this point. Violetta Duran is a high school English teacher with nearly 20 years of experience. She's burned out and she's not alone. 
According to a 2022 Gallup survey of more than 12,000 workers across 14 industries, including other high-stress careers like healthcare and law, teachers in K-12 education are the most burned out. The National Center for Education Statistics says nearly half of all public schools reported full or part-time teaching vacancies that they were unable to fill in 2022. The result? Larger class sizes and less support for the teachers who remain. The impact is massive. Every student you add on top of that exponentially increases the difficulty in being able to aid every student. Aid that research shows students sorely need following years of disrupted learning caused by the pandemic. And teachers say they don't have the bandwidth to give. But class size is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what students and teachers are struggling with right now. Teachers say when they return to the classroom full time, students were less engaged and more prone to behavioral issues. Verify spoke to several current and former teachers who say they're burning out for two main reasons, being overworked and underpaid. Teachers say those factors aren't new, but they've reached a breaking point, a breaking point that might cause your child's teacher to leave the classroom for good. My pay since I started has not quite doubled, but my rent has tripled. Throughout her career, Duran's salary hasn't kept up with the cost of living. The average teacher salary in the U.S. during the 2021 to 2022 school year was $66,432. Adjust that for inflation, and it's less than teachers made 10 years ago, according to the National Education Association. And teachers' salaries are not increasing at the same rate as their workload. According to survey data from research organization RAND, nearly 60% of teachers reported working more than they did before the pandemic, with teachers working six more hours per week on average. The main reason? Teachers had to dedicate more time to creating lesson plans to keep students engaged. They kind of unlearned how to be students. Data from McKinsey and Company, a research and consulting group, found that on average, K-12 students fell behind by five months in mathematics and four months in reading than they were expected to be at the end of the 2021 to 2022 school year. Teachers now have to spend more time to help their students catch up. I really became very poor at managing my personal time. Middle school band teacher Sarah Coys quit in 2021. My mental health has improved leaps and bounds. I started doing things I enjoy just and, and it was actually some of it was music. I realized how much I had stepped away from the thing I loved that got me into teaching in the first place. Both pay and workload issues are even worse for teachers of color. A recent Center for American Progress study found that black teachers earn on average $2,700 less per year than white teachers. Black teachers disproportionately teach in high poverty schools where teachers earn even less. And to make matters worse. Oftentimes, educators of color are returning to the scene of the crime, so to speak. Um, they were students in our school system or students in school systems that, you know, where they felt oftentimes very undersupported. Teachers of color told Verify they often have to take on extra responsibilities compared to their white peers. Evan Shin was one of those teachers. Now he's an instructional coach providing mentorship and guidance to teachers in the classroom. He says white teachers often tasked him with disciplining students of color in their classrooms just because he's black. It wears on you. It becomes a brown and black tax. ¿Puedes cambiar de opinión? Sí. A 2018 study of Latino teachers found a similar pattern. Many bilingual educators reported that they often took on extra responsibilities, like translating and weren't compensated. Regardless of race, teachers burning out and leaving the profession is nothing new. Richard Ingersoll, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who studies trends in the teaching workforce, found that for the last two decades... Between 40 and 50 percent of those who go into teaching are gone within the five, 
first five years. A statistic he says his research still supports today. So what's different now? America's teaching pipeline is drying up. We're losing teachers faster than we can get new ones in. A report from the National Education Association, the nation's largest teachers union, revealed that more than half of their teachers in 2021 said they were more likely to quit or retire early because of ongoing job stress. On top of that, less people are studying to become teachers. Most states require teachers to at least have a bachelor's degree to teach at any grade level. The majority of teachers have a degree in education. But according to data from the National Center for Education Statistics, the percent of college grads earning a bachelor's degree in education is roughly half of what it was in 1970, dropping from more than 170,000 to less than 90,000 in 2019. I feel like teachers have been screaming, there's a crisis, there's a crisis, there's a crisis, and nobody's listening. So who's going to teach America's children when that pipeline dries up? It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Next week on Face the State, Verify shows us what's being done to get more people into the teaching profession. We'll take a look at action from the federal and state governments, as well as look at how one major university is giving students a full ride to school if they commit to becoming a teacher in their state. Okay, the Buckeye State has a new brand. We are Ohio, the heart of it all. And that new slogan replaces Ohio, find it here, which has been used since 2016. Governor Mike DeWine made the announcement on Ohio Tourism Day. He said he wants to promote Ohio as more than a travel destination and stat as a great place to live, work and raise a family. Ohio is the heart of opportunity. Whether you're starting a business, looking to change careers or working towards a better future, for your family, for yourself, uh, Ohio is the heart of opportunity. It is a place where dreams can come true. And the brand isn't really that new. It was also our state slogan back in the 1980s and 90s. The heart of it all. Thank you for being with us here today. And we'll see you tomorrow on Wake Up Bus. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy with a look at what you can see this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Coming up on Face the State, back to the polls, the critical conversations this week that will set the stage for a summer election. And strut that stuff. You could say he helped build the runway for Columbus to become one of the top cities for fashion. We'll see you at 1130 for Face the State. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. This next segment is from December of this past year. It's been edited slightly for clarity, but still holds up with pertinent information. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dr. Brian Santine, who is the president of the Ohio State Medical Association. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on today, Dave. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for talking to us. Uh, can you uh, give us a little bit of uh, background on you? Sure. Uh, I am a, a born and bred Ohio guy. Uh, I was born uh, and raised in Solon, it's on the east side of Cleveland. Uh, after high school, I went to the Ohio State University and got my undergraduate degree in economics. I stayed at OSU for medical school, uh, after which I went to Mount Carmel uh, in Columbus and did uh, five years of general surgery training. I am a board-certified general surgeon. Um, and then uh, after that, I went down to Cincinnati to the Tri-Health uh, system and completed a two-year vascular surgery fellowship. I finished that up in 2013. And uh, then uh, after graduating, I um, <clears throat> had a personal desire to uh, provide vascular surgical care to uh, part of America that really needs it the most, and that's the rural aspects of rural areas of, of the U.S. And so I uh, opened up my own solo private practice in Wilmington, which is a community about halfway between Columbus and Cincinnati. Um, and uh, over the past almost uh, just a little over nine years now, uh, built my practice to a little over uh, 7,000 patients, um, providing what I consider bread and butter uh, vascular surgical care uh, to uh, to patients in this part of Ohio. Uh, so while I've uh, maintained my uh, my private practice, um, I also uh, in January of 2020 um, took over as the chief medical officer of our health system here in Wilmington at Clinton Memorial Hospital, and so I've served in that capacity for just about now three years. Wow. Uh, and again. Um, then uh, took uh, took on another uh, leadership role with the Ohio State Medical Association, uh, becoming president. Well, you sound like a doctor who doesn't have a lot of time to golf. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's uh, that. You know, um, it is uh, time management um, uh, at its uh, uh, best, I would say. And and I'll tell you, and a lot of folks ask, boy, how do you do all this? I mean, these are kind of three full time jobs, and you know, the reality is, I I don't do this on my own. Uh, if I didn't have my um, uh, best friend and confidant, otherwise known as my wife, uh, Crystal, who constantly is kind of helping keep things in order, um, and uh, we, we pretty much work as a team on, on uh, all aspects of things. And uh, it's, you know, time management and, and maintaining a really good work-life balance, which is really critical, um, especially in the increased uh, uh, stressors that have been placed on our healthcare workforce, especially over the past uh, three years now of, of the uh, COVID pandemic. So, um, yeah, I'm able to, uh, you know, I, as I tell folks, I work more now than I ever thought that I would, but I wouldn't trade my life for the world. It is just, it's fantastic to have the opportunities to work alongside such fantastic folks in healthcare right now. Uh, it's really an honor. That's excellent. And you touched on uh, what we're going to be talking about, which is Stress uh, in the healthcare field. It's been a rough couple of years for the healthcare industry. Uh, it, it, it certainly has, and this it, it should be no surprise to anybody. You know, um, the COVID 19 pandemic has really kind of expedited what was already kind of in the works, you know, and what was already known um, about physician and healthcare worker burnout. Um, you know, burnout and, and the stresses of just today's pace of, of living. And this isn't unique to healthcare. I know um, lawyers are dealing with these same issues. Pretty much every sector um, has really been pushed to the brink at, at various times, whether it's pandemic related or not. Healthcare has really kind of um, brought to the forefront uh, the issue with, uh, with our healthcare uh, folks. In fact, if you look at statistics, uh, they show that nearly half of physicians, nurses, and medical students have or are experiencing substantial symptoms uh, of burnout. Um, and you know the, the reality of you know the well-being of our healthcare workforce 
it matters to everybody. You know, when, when healthcare workers are taken care of physically and mentally, we are better able to do what we do best, which is care for our patients. So it's, um, it, it has certainly highlighted uh, the, the extra burden in that that the pandemic has, has brought on the healthcare system, for sure. And such a complicated issue because, you know, we all heard about how hospitals were being overrun with COVID patients who are not typical patients. They're very ill patients, many that were going into intensive care. But on top of being busy, you've got these folks working in hospitals who are at risk of, of getting it. And that was before the vaccine at you know a scary level of risk of what could happen to them. Right. Exactly. And, uh, but you know, um, I think uh, folks that work in the healthcare field have a, have a special calling. They have a, a duty to, to their fellow man and woman and, and their communities. And um, you know, folks, you do it because it's the right thing to do. Also realizing you, you put yourself in, in, in harm's way, potentially, you know, every day that you're going to work. Um, but again, you know, it's kind of almost a higher calling to, to try and provide aid and care to our, our neighbors, you know, really. It's uh, an interesting situation with uh, mental health because, you know, there is still a stigma about mental health and, and mental wellness. What is that like in the medical industry where, you know, it's the medical industry that takes care of that, and yet if you are in the medical industry and you suffer from it, are you stigmatized there? Um, I'd like to say no. You know, um, I think the reality, Dave, though, is exactly as you point out. I think there is still, unfortunately, this this sense of a, a fear of, of potential licensure ramifications or a stigma of, of, of from potential colleagues or, or, or patients or others. You know, oh, hold on, is something not right? You know, <clears throat> and the, but the reality is, mental health is 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 just as important as just a real. Uh, clinical condition and diagnoses as, say, somebody that has a bad gallbladder. And, um, you know, I think the more and more that we talk about it so that folks understand that this is this is real. The same with, you know, the sense of, of burnout and the stresses we were just talking about, you know, a few moments ago. You know, for many years it seems like we're always kind of doing research into seeing, boy, is, is burnout and stress on the healthcare workforce, is this real or is it just something that, and you know, the data has come in, and again, as I mentioned earlier, nearly half of everybody in the field right now is, is dealing with this. And, and now we know, okay, it's real, it's a real entity, now what can we do about it? And, and that's, that's something that the Ohio State Medical Association is really leading the charge on providing help to our healthcare workforce. And so I think the more that we do acknowledge and say, hey, this isn't something that we're just, you know, not sure if it's really there, but mental health and mental health um, care and recognition is a real entity. I think uh, Governor DeWine just was mentioning he wants to place increased emphasis to make Ohio the leading example for mental health care recognition and services in the country. Talking with Dr. Brian Santine, he's the president of the Ohio State Medical Association. In a moment, I want to talk about ways that you are addressing this issue, but I'm curious, you bounce around between Columbus and Wilmington. Is there a difference between more uh, rural, small-town areas and their staffs compared to the big cities as far as mental health and stressors? Great question, Dave. You know, um, I'm not 
off the top of, of my head aware of specific statistics on differentiations, but uh, you certainly have some similarities between the metropolitan and the rural areas as well. Certainly, it's, it should be no shock to anybody that staffing, just like we, we hear about in all other industries, people are having a hard time finding workers, and, and healthcare uh, is certainly not immune uh, from that, and so lack of, of adequate staffing in our hospitals. That's a, that's a real problem right now, and that's not just in the metropolitan areas, that's in the rural parts of this, uh, this state as well. Now, the Ohio State Medical Association has launched uh, something called well-being care. What is that? So, uh, as I alluded to earlier, um, you know, again, for, for quite some time we had discussed was burnout and the stress of working in the healthcare industry, was it a real entity? And again, as I said, uh, we know that, in fact, it is. So... Now the next step is, once you've identified the problem, how are we going to help address it? And that's where the Ohio State Medical Association and our Ohio State Medical Association Foundation have really stepped to the forefront with um, the development of um, our program. It's called wellbeingcare.org. This is a completely free and anonymous service. Um, It is available to any licensed healthcare professional in the state of Ohio. If you simply go to wellbeingcare.org, you can take a brief assessment for your mental and emotional health. Typically takes just about 10 minutes or so to complete that. At the completion of kind of doing the self-assessment, you receive uh, some recommendations for potential mental health services in your community. You also will have the option, if you so choose, to be privately connected with a licensed mental health professional. You know, and things that, that, that I stress about this program that we're really proud of is, A, not only are we offering an opportunity to, for any healthcare worker, it's not just physicians, it's not just nurses, any healthcare worker in the state of Ohio to go on and to complete this self-assessment completely free and completely anonymous. We made sure, because exactly to your point earlier, that there is still this perception of a stigma uh, associated with mental health, and we want to ensure that there is no way for any data to be researched, to be pulled from this. I don't have any access to the to the program to be able to even say, oh, from this zip code, I can see that three people, you know, participate in the self-assessment. There, we, we track nothing. There's no ability to do so. Um, and we really stress that. And as a result of offering this in this capacity, and as well as offering the ability with, to, to connect folks at their choosing, right? After you complete the self-assessment, what you do with that result, it's up to you. If, if you just want to take that and, and self-reflect and maybe seek out um, some help um, on, your, on your own terms or your own time, we provide you some resources to do so in your community. But if you feel like, ah, boy, you know what, I, I would like to, to, to talk to a licensed mental health professional, we're more than happy to do that and we'll help facilitate that within a 24-hour period. That's great because, it, as you mentioned, uh, the tool could be used for self-reflection. Uh, you know, there may be some who know that they're not in the right state of mind right now because of uh, the work situation, perhaps, and getting into a 10-minute questionnaire might allow them to delve into themselves a little bit, help figure things out, and then maybe make them feel more like they do want to get help. Yep. And, and there's nothing to say that in a week or in a month, you may want to come back and complete this, the, the assessment again. Right. And then compare to see, hey, how was I doing last month compared to, you know, I've, I've, I've made some changes, whatever that may be. Maybe we're exercising more. Maybe I'm trying to focus on eating more healthy. Uh, maybe I'm focusing on trying to work to get a better work-life balance. 
after completing the assessment, I went home and maybe I sat down and I talked to my wife and said, hey, this is what I was doing today. And I, and I did this assessment and this is what it showed. What do you, what do you think? Right. And kind of work through this, um, you know, I, at your own pace. And that's and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we've had uh, almost nearly 6,000 uh, individuals in the state of Ohio complete the assessment. Um, of those uh, roughly 6,000 folks, uh, over 200 have uh, completed the assessment and gone on to um, interact with a counselor. Hmm. So um, I'm proud of, of the fact that we are now offering this service to healthcare workers in, in the state because I think it's critically important that, that we do. You know, it's almost, you know, at, at some point when you identify a problem, you need to do something. And we think that, that what we've put forth here in wellbeingcare.org is, is really helping start to chip away at the block of finding solutions and providing solutions to our healthcare workforce. That's great. You know, when you think of those numbers, you know, you start thinking of the old uh, classic theaters in downtown Columbus. You're filling a couple of those up worth of people that are taking this thing online. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very good point. It's a, it's a way to help kind of shed further light on the, the, the fact that this is, this is real life. This is um, real people dealing with real stress, real issues associated with the line of work that they have been called to do. Feel compelled um, in our quest as the Ohio State Medical Association to make um, Ohio healthier. To recognize that that's not just our patients, but those are the folks too that are caring for our patients. Talking with Dr. Brian Santine, he's the president of the Ohio State Medical Association. I'm curious, you know, when you talk about how overworked staff were during the pandemic, it just seems like we, the world has really dodged a bullet here. I mean, because of the vaccine that came out at record speed and was unbelievably effective. I would, I would agree. We've, we've dodged a big one. And, and you know, if, if you're kind of sitting back, and I'm sure there will be scholarly articles, you know, and pundits that will continually um, kind of assess different countries and even uh, locales as to how they, you know, address the, the pandemic. I know as, as an organization, we already have a, a task force on pandemic preparedness um, that is meeting regularly so that we continually develop better methods and uh, uh, procedures and policies so that we, we can do this better next time, right? It's not a question of if there's going to be another something like COVID come down the road. It's just a matter of when. And, um, in regards to the, the zero COVID policy that they had in China, initially, boy, it, it kind of made sense. I mean, if, if they were able to, given kind of their government structure and the, the ability that the government has to regulate their people in, in that country, it seemed to really be effective. In fact, if you look at their mortality numbers in, in China from COVID, I mean, over the first uh, two years, it was shocking, shockingly low. Mm-hmm. However, now with the Omicron variant and BQ1 and BQ1.1 are the dominant strains, and they are, they are maybe less serious, but they are certainly more transmissible. And so in our country, we are very fortunate to have um, basically cut a lot of the red tape in the um, process for developing vaccines. It's not that the vaccines themselves are any less stringently reviewed by the FDA and government agencies, but it was kind of, hey, this is the highest priority of anything we're working on right now. If you're working on something else, you got to work on this right now to be able to prove and get these get these through the pipeline so that we can get them out to the public. And uh, yeah, it 
I would guess that part of the stress, too, involved in all this is still, and I think it's a, a pretty small percent of people these days, perhaps, who never believed that the pandemic was as big a deal as it was. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know for certain. For certain, um, obviously, the numbers. I don't think anybody uh, knows how many folks didn't believe that the pandemic was a real entity. It certainly, unfortunately, not continued to garner any uh, significant um, uh, airtime, if you will, right. uh, from the media perspective. I would say, which is helpful. Right. You know, um, those of us that work in healthcare, uh, we we see this day in and day out. Um, I have personally had conversations with patients who, um, you know, had, had concerns and doubts about the efficacy and, and how mm-hmm. vaccines were developed so quickly and, you know, a variety of, of concerns over things. And, you know, I think it's really helpful when a patient has that ability to have frank and honest conversation with their healthcare professional who is in the weeds. You know, I mean, we, I've, I've, I've seen patients pass away from COVID-19 more than I would like to admit. And, um, and we've seen the devastating impact that it then has on the family. And, and it's, um, I've also taken care of patients who have gotten COVID. They spent three, four months in the hospital, um, and maybe now they're wheelchair bound as a result of the, the illness, but thank God they're still alive, but they'll be very quick to say, boy, I wish I'd just gotten the vaccine. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's the whole gamut. You know, um, but I think the more that our healthcare workforce is um, able to have those honest conversations with their patients, I think that's probably the most helpful in uh, to dispel any concerns, rumors, misinformation. You know, really is is to talking. You know, talking to the person that you're coming to see for healthcare advice. Dr. Brian Santine, he's with uh, he's the president of the Ohio State Medical Association. I wanted to ask you, I'm curious, you said that you made the intentional move to go to Wilmington to help out folks in that area. The Columbus Dispatch had a story about the need for doctors in rural areas and a problem that's just going to get worse as time goes on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, we've known for uh, several years. Uh, this goes back to some uh, initial research that I'm aware of from the American College of Surgeons, uh, dating back even to the mid uh, mid to late 90s, that was predicting a uh, not just a surgeon but an overall physician shortage in this country, given the uh, birth rates and um, most notably the, the hindering kind of aspect. If I recall correctly, from a lot of those studies, was that we weren't training any more physicians. The number of residency allocated spots in the country were kind of capped, and I think this was around like 96 or 98 possibly. And um, so we weren't training any more physicians, but our population was growing. Um, and uh, just the, the way that the world works and, and that migra- migration patterns have, have come about um, over the past 50, 60 years, more and more folks have, have been um, uh, relocated towards metropolitan areas and less maybe to rural and then different industries and sectors kind of follow the same patterns and healthcare is no different. Uh, so again, as I was saying in 2013, when I finished up my training, I was one of 72 vascular surgery um, uh, fellows that graduated that year. And I was the only one who uh, decided to start my own solo private practice. Um, and again, I specifically chose to do that in, in Wilmington. Um, you know, there's only about less than 2,500, I believe, board certified vascular surgeons in this country. And uh, looking at the estimates, there's roughly 12 to 15 million people with vascular disease. So wow. just based on those two numbers alone, you can see that 
we're well understaffed from a vascular surgeon perspective, and it's uh, even further highlighted in rural America. Um, you know, as an example, I'm here in Wilmington, and I'm the only vascular surgeon within 45, almost 50 miles. Wow. Um, so it's, um, yeah, how, how do we change that? Well, we need to, we need to train more. But, again, that's not as simple as, you know, flicking a switch and, you know, uh, being able to do so. But uh, also inspiring folks to see that the, the benefits of, of working in a rural community. I mean, I, again, as I said earlier in this conversation, I wouldn't trade my life for the world. Um, I, th- I feel like I kind of have the best of both worlds. I live, you know, on the south side of, of Columbus there in, in German Village, that little historic community. So I kind of get the, the perks and benefits of, of living in a, one of the largest 14th, I think, largest metropolitan area in the country. But yet I work um, in a kind of in the cornfields with salt of the earth people. Right. And I just uh, I, I've really found that this is I really thrive in, in this type of uh, environment work wise because my patients really appreciate the fact I'm here. And I really love being able to provide, you know, this necessary care to, to folks here. I would guess that another piece of that problem is, you know, once you get out of medical school and you're ready to start, when you're looking at a six-figure debt, you're going to want to work in a big city where the money is. Well, um, that's a, a certain concern. However, I would uh, correct you and say that actually still in the rural parts of, of our country, the amount that you get paid for what you do is not determined by the big city versus the little city. It's all the, it's, it's all determined for the most part by, by Medicare. Medicare sets the rates that are um, in place for all physicians, all healthcare providers really, that bill services for Medicare patients. And all the private payers, the anthems, the medical mutuals, um, United Healthcare's, all those, they kind of basically fall in line with where Medicare is. They may be a couple of bucks more, a couple of bucks less, but for the, for the most part, um, keeping, keeping it simple, it's the government that really sets what those rates are. And they recognize that, sure, if you, if you live in provide care in New York City, your cost of living and whatnot is going to be more, so you get paid more, but you also have a higher cost of living. Versus if you're working in Columbus, Ohio, that Medicare rate is going to reimburse less, but then again, your your cost of living is, is different. So there isn't really that much difference. They are able to financially compete with the major metropolitan areas to a certain degree. And I will tell you, I, I recruit folks as the chief medical officer here in Wilmington quite regularly. I just uh, I met with a, a fine uh, young gentleman that just finished up uh, some emergency medicine uh, residency training and is looking to, to come here to our community. And I can offer here very similar compensation packages as somebody in, you know, in Cincinnati, in Dayton, or in Columbus. Huh. That's, that's great. Interesting. Uh, Talking with Dr. Brian Santine, he's the president of the Ohio State Medical Association. Before we uh, let you go, doctor, again, give the information where healthcare workers can find this information online about well-being. Sure. Uh, And again, Dave, thanks for the opportunity today. I really appreciate uh, coming on your show and and be more than happy to to come back at any point in the future as well. Um, But again, uh, our program that, that we've developed and launched, it's completely free completely anonymous, and it's for any licensed uh, medical professional uh, or student um, who is enrolled in healthcare training programs uh, across the state. Um, it is uh, an anonymous screening for mental and emotional health issues, and again, if needed, we are able to connect uh, individuals with licensed uh, mental health professionals and resources, and the, uh, the website, it's uh, wellbeingcare.com. 
wellbeingcare.org. Again, that's wellbeing, B-E-I-N-G, care, C-A-R-E.org. Ohio State Medical Association President Dr. Brian Santine. Good information. Thanks so much for it, and, uh, and thanks for your time today. Thank you again, Dave. Appreciate it. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.